I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, I'm thankful again for the opportunity to be here. So thankful to be invited for the generous hospitality that Brittany and I have been shown over the past couple of days. So it's an honor. It is a privilege. I always feel at home amongst Bible-believing Christians. And so it is encouraging to worship with you. It has been encouraging to consider this topic of evangelism with you. And now we have one more opportunity to open up the word and to be encouraged and strengthened equipped from God's Word. And so we are going to consider Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 16, just to set the context, but we will spend most of our time in verses 22 through 34, a text I am confident many of you are familiar with. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habit dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we consider this text. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you that it is unchanging, it is true. And we pray as we consider this sermon of the Apostle Paul that you would help us to be equipped to share the gospel with other people. And Lord, even more so than that, that you would help us first and foremost to see your glory that is declared in this gospel. So we pray that you would give us attentive minds and that you would grow us in our understanding and that you would build up your church and that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. I have done some pretty dumb things during the course of my life, and I'm going to share with you one of those dumb things. I used to be the director of the Health and Recreation Center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. When I was a student there, I worked for the institution in this role. And at the Health and Recreation Center, every year we would do a program that would imitate this TV show that was out there at the time called The Biggest Loser. It was basically an idea that we would put on this program and it would be an opportunity for people to sign up and to be motivated to exercise and to be fit and to try to lose some weight. It was really popular. People loved it. Well, I had heard from one of our employees that another employee of the institution had participated in this program in years past. His name was Ed. And Ed worked for admissions. He was a larger-than-life personality. He was a jokester. He loved to have fun. He didn't take himself seriously. There was a reason he was in admissions. He was a very personable people person. So I had the idea that I was going to ask Ed to help us market this program. So I called Ed on his phone, but he didn't answer. And I simply said, not thinking, hey, Ed, it's Matt. We want you to be the poster boy for our Biggest Loser program. (laughs) And I hung up. I didn't think anything of it. I thought he's going to love this. He's going to want to help. Well, I go to work the next morning, and I get a call from the director of admissions. And he said, hey, Matt, I want you to know that we got the voicemail. It was played on the speaker, and the whole office heard it, and Ed is really upset. He said, you may not know this, but he's really sensitive about this issue, and he's had some health problems, and he was really hurt by your message. And I felt awful. (laughs) He said, I'm going to come down and talk to you. So... On his way down, I get another call from the dean of students who said, hey, I heard about the message that you had left, and I'll follow up with you later as well. So I am provoked with frustration and anger, not towards them, but towards myself. How could I be so dumb? I I need to apologize to Ed. And so the director of admissions comes down and I tell him, I feel horrible. I am going to apologize to Ed. And while he is talking to me, Ed comes barging in the door and says, you just got pranked. 
He set this all up. He had called the dean of students. He loved it. He loved it. He loved being the center of attention. He wanted to help us out. I knew this was his personality, which is why I reached out to, the, to him, but they definitely had me fooled. And while I was fooled, I was definitely provoked. Not with them, but with my own stupidity. Now, in the text before us, we read that Paul himself was provoked. But what was it that provoked him while in Athens? Well, look at verse 16. Now, Paul was waiting for them. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul is angry. He is upset. He is filled with this kind of emotional distress because the people in this city have given their hearts to false gods. He was provoked. It's actually the word that is used to describe the sharp disagreement that arose between Paul and Barnabas earlier in Acts. It's a word the prophets used to describe God's anger towards the idolatry of his people. Provoked. It is the feeling that you would probably have if you saw someone trying to sell a harmful drug to one of your children. You would be provoked. And here, Paul is provoked because people give their worship to something other than the true God. And so what does he do? He preaches the gospel. There's a lot we can learn here from Paul and his message in Athens. Not only can we learn from the content of his preaching, but from the example of his preaching. Don't think that as our society becomes more secular, that it is not idolatrous. We have our own idols. We live in a culture full of idols. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. We are surrounded by idol worshipers, whether in Ellensburg or in Salt Lake City, Utah. When you look around the culture, you may not see altars with the inscription to the unknown God, but you see the idols of materialism, the idols of comfort and of greed, the idols of self and status, of body image, and whatever false gods people are looking to for a sense of meaning, of purpose, of identity, and security. We're not a culture filled with statues, but we are not that different than Athens. Some of you know about this city of Athens. It was a famous city. It was actually the birthplace of Western civilization. The city was founded hundreds of years by the, before Paul showed up here in Acts 17. 
This was a city known across the world for its architecture, for its philosophy, its politics. It was home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Even in Paul's day, it was the hotbed for the intellectual elites. The Epicurean philosophers and the Stoics were there. They loved intellectual conversations and new ideas. So they want to hear what Paul has to say and they bring him to the Areopagus to hear him out. Now, what would you say to these people? Imagine you are surrounded by Oxford scholars, idol worshipers, many people who don't know the Bible, but are considered the smarty pants of the culture. How do you evangelize in this context? Well, look what Paul does. I'll point out four takeaways from his sermon as we think about our own evangelism. First, notice that all people worship something. Back up to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul does not start his message trying to prove the existence of God. He doesn't say, here, let me give you five arguments to prove that God exists. He knows that all people made in the image of God already have a sense of the divine. They know God exists. And they give their worship to something because they are worshiping creatures made in God's image. Inherently religious I said in one of the talks earlier that John Piper opened his book on missions with this famous statement. He said, missions exists because worship doesn't. But we could actually say that another way, and I know Piper would agree. We could say missions exists because false worship does. Human beings are worshiping creatures. We can't escape it. Even the so-called atheist is pursuing pleasure in something or someone. Even the atheist gives his delight, his trust, his security, his hope to something. Everyone worships. The question is not, do you worship? It is, what do you worship? In our evangelism, we don't need to feel the burden to prove God's existence God has done a pretty good job making himself known in the world that he has made. This is the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1. Listen to Romans 1, verses 19 through 21. The apostle Paul said, For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is the Gentile world who never had the scriptures. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
You see, the problem with humanity is that God has revealed himself plainly, his eternal power and divine nature. But instead of giving God worship, humanity in our fallen condition exchanges the worship of the true God for the creature, for idols. And so all people remain without excuse. Paul knows this. He tells them, you worship what you don't know. But God is right here. He's not far. Look what he says in verses 26 through 28 of Acts 17. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Let me tell you about the God that you know, but you don't know. You see? He has made himself known. And he is clearly perceived. But you don't know him. You don't seek for him. You give your worship to idols. Brothers and sisters, in our evangelism, we don't have to be philosophers to prove the existence of God. We must simply talk about the God who has revealed himself plainly in creation. Even most atheists live every day as though God were real. Well, what do I mean? I mean they have a moral compass. They obey traffic lights. They follow the laws of the land. They value relationships with other people. Some do humanitarian work. They behave as though human life matters. They care about justice in society. They borrow from the Christian worldview while simultaneously denying it at the same time. This is why the Bible says it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. The human heart is, as John Calvin said, an idol factory. Missions exists, evangelism exists, because false worship exists. So Paul didn't look at these intellectual elites and said, okay, let me impress you with a philosophical argument. He said, let me tell you about the God of the Bible. Now, second, we must preach and teach about this God. Here, Paul mentions three things. God is creator, God is self-sufficient, and God is sovereign. So look at this. First, God is the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So Paul begins where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the universe and everything in it. We do not make God. We do not manipulate God. We cannot contain God in a temple because he is the creator of all. Before there was anything, there was God. He is infinite. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before anything existed, God was there. Where? God was there. Well, where is there? You see, we have to talk in ways to make sense out of it. But nothing existed 
Before God created it, there was only God. He is the creator. The Bible is so clear on this. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Paul teaches them that God is the creator because it establishes the fact that he is Lord of heaven and earth and that we are not morally autonomous creatures. We are not gods. We are accountable to our maker. This is so foundational. We live amongst people who have been told from their earliest years that they were not created, but evolved from primordial soup. It just kind of appeared and then evolved out of this ooze into sophisticated creatures. They've been told that we're nothing more than animals, bags of biology, life is meaningless, so people despair. Or they think we can be whatever we want to be. But those same people can't escape the fact that they have a conscience and know the feeling of guilt because God is the creator and the standard of righteousness and he has impressed his law into our hearts so that we know right from wrong. We are made in his image. So when we share the gospel with post-Christian people, we should tell them about God who created the world. Second, Paul says God is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This doctrine of self-sufficiency is what theologians call the doctrine of aseity. Aseity means life from himself. It's this doctrine that God is perfectly self-sufficient. He depends on nothing. He needs nothing. He depends on no one. He is perfectly happy in himself. God does not learn anything from his creatures. He does not gain anything from his creatures. He does not need any of his creatures. Some people talk as though the reason God made the world was because that he was lonely and he just needed some people to love and to love him. No, he didn't. God was perfectly happy in eternity past in his own Trinitarian fellowship with himself. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit communicating that love in the Trinity. Well, then why did he create the world? Why did he make us? Well, I like Jonathan Edwards' answer to that question. He said, it is no deficiency of a fountain that is inclined to overflow. Well said. It is no deficiency of a fountain that is inclined to overflow. God created the world out of the overflow of delight in himself. And someone will say, well, this makes God sound so unrelatable. Well, why does this matter? This is actually a glorious truth. Notice that Paul is saying this about God in the context of contrasting the true God with idols. In fact, verse 25 alludes to Isaiah 42, verse 5. 
Listen to Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is Isaiah declaring the truth about God in a context where he is contrasting the true God with the false idols of people. And what Isaiah says is that people give their worship to these dumb idols that can't talk, that can't walk, and that need people to carve them and to carry them and to create them. And the true God is not like that because he has life in himself and he gives life to all mankind. Listen, this may sound like just kind of academic theology, but is extremely relevant for evangelism. People across the world are giving themselves to idols who can't give them life. And you know what their idols are like? They're like vacuums sucking the life out of them. The idol of materialism tells people, hey, get more stuff, make more money. It will satisfy you. It will make you happy. And then people get stuff, and they make more money, and it doesn't satisfy. It says you need more, you need more, you need more, and it never comes through on its promises. The idol of workaholism says advance in your career, do a good job, get promoted. That'll give you identity. That'll give you value. That'll give you purpose. And they spend their whole lives climbing the corporate ladder, never finding the meaning that they're ultimately seeking. I live in Utah, where people worship the God of Mormonism, a God who says you are saved by grace after all that you can do. And so he says, do more. Have you done all that you can do? Who's going to say yes to that question? Have you done all that you can do? Do more. Do more. It's not good enough. These kinds of idols abound in our culture. The idols of money, of power, of sex, autonomy, identity. They make promises, but they don't come through on their promises. They promise life and leave you empty. They demand more, ask more. And if you fail to achieve their commands, they condemn you. They berate you. You say you are nothing. They suck the life out of you. And when you give your whole life to them and you go to the grave, they cannot raise your body from the dead. They have not life in themselves. But the true God is not a vacuum. He's a fountain, a fountain that overflows. He needs nothing from us. He says, come to me, and he gives us himself, and more of himself, and more of himself, not taking, but filling. And when we fail him, well, he gives us forgiveness, forgiveness in Christ, because he deals with our sin. This God is self-sufficient. He is life-giving. He gives us joy in his infinite delight. Tell people of this God. He's creator. He is self-sufficient. Notice Paul Paul also says he is sovereign. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The God of the Bible, the true God, is sovereign over all things. Not some things, not most things, but all things. He has numbered your days. He is sovereign over your existence. He has established the boundaries of your dwelling. You are alive right now because the sovereign Lord is keeping you alive. And you will not live one day longer or one day shorter than he has determined. Every place your footsteps will follow the course that he has laid out for you. Do you ever wonder, why am I, why am I at where I'm at? Why am I in Sandy, Utah? Well, not right now. We're in Ellensburg. But you know what I mean. Do you ever wonder, why am I in Ellensburg? Well, it's because God, in his sovereign purpose for your life, has you here in this moment, in this generation, for a purpose. He is sovereign over all. He is Lord. He's the true God. He is self-sufficient, the creator. This is God, and he's not that far from you, Paul says. You know him, but you don't know him. Paul's evangelism here is brilliant because he establishes some level of common ground with these people. Hey, even your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. He's like, you, you see this, you're aware of this. Even some of your own poets know that God is the creator and he made us. Look, even unbelievers, because they are made in the image of God, will get some things right. And we can pick up on that common ground with them to share the gospel with them. I was talking to a man recently who was telling me that he just could not believe or accept the fact that God was going to send him to hell because at the end of the day, he was a pretty moral guy. He lived a pretty good life and it would be unjust for God to condemn him to hell for eternity. And so I said to him, you know what? It seems like you have a standard of justice where the punishment should fit the crime. I said, I too have that same standard of justice where the punishment should fit the crime. Why do you think we both share the same standard of justice? I said, because it's, we're made in the image of God. And our standard of justice actually comes from God's standard, and you can't use God's standard to condemn God. Common ground. And I was able to share the gospel with him. I was sharing the gospel on the campus of Salt Lake Community College. I think this was last year. And we were out sharing the gospel and handing out tracts, and I hear this guy yell at me, I know what you're doing. I look over, and there's this guy yelling, I know what you're doing. You're telling people about Jesus. <laughs> so I walked over to talk to this guy, and he was a atheist, communist, whatever else ist is out there. And we talked for quite some time about the gospel. And at one point in our conversation, he looks at me and he says, you have pretty nice shoes. <laughs> I didn't expect him to say that. I didn't think my shoes were that nice. I buy shoes like every two years. You have pretty nice shoes. How much did you pay for them? $70? 
$80. Now, why didn't you buy cheaper shoes and use the extra money to give it to the poor? Now, the irony to me at this point in the conversation was that the atheist communist had turned into the religious Pharisee. (laughs) So I said to him, you know what? Maybe you're right. You seem to think that we should treat other human beings with compassion, that we should have concern for the poor. I said, maybe you're right. Maybe I should have done that. But if you think that's my biggest problem, you don't know anything. I am a way worse sinner than you could imagine. But what I'm telling you is that Jesus came to save sinners. We can pick up on the common ground that we share with unbelievers because they bear the divine image and they can't escape that they live in a world made by God and live and move and have their being in a world designed by God. And they bear the imprint of his image. And so I shared the gospel with him. Third, notice from this text, that Paul doesn't just preach the doctrine of God, he preaches Jesus, the resurrection, and the final judgment. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, just in case anyone is tempted to think that Paul was giving too much credit to them for their religion, he quickly tells them where their religious behavior will get them. Judgment. Judgment. We must not shy away from telling people that a day of judgment is coming. That hell is real. That God has fixed a day, as one commentator said, on his divine calendar, when all people will stand before him, all men, all women, rich and poor, slave and free, kings and commoners will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Just look out into our world right now. Turn on the news. Look at the atrocities that are committed against humanity. Look at the acts of terrorism and the evil and the wickedness in our world. And what do we know deep down inside? We know that all wrongs must be righted. That there is a day of reckoning coming. We know it to be true. And the judge on that day will be Christ himself. God raised him from the dead. The book of Daniel gives us this picture, this vision of one like the Son of Man. And he says this Son of Man ascended to heaven before the Ancient of Days. And he was given all authority and all power and all dominion, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that vision of Daniel was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he rose from the dead said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We must tell people that there is a day of judgment coming. 
Now, it's not said explicitly in this text, but we know that if Paul preached the resurrection, that he also preached the death of Christ. In fact, this sermon that he gave on the Areopagus was probably hours long. Some of you are thinking, please don't do that now. (laughs) Hours long, and Luke has condensed it and summarized it for us. And we know that the gospel Paul preached, not only preached of the impending judgment, but of the salvation that is found in Christ. That there is mercy and there is grace for sinners who flee to Christ, who trust in his death and the atonement that he has made for sins. That's why he's warning them of the judgment so that they will escape God's just judgment by taking refuge in Christ. And so notice, there are two responses to his sermon. Look at verse 32 and 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagate and a woman named Demarius and others with them. You see the two responses? Some mocked. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not sophisticated like us. We don't believe that nonsense. Others believed. Others believed. To some, the gospel is an aroma of death. To some, it is an aroma of life. We can't control the response, but this will be the response to our preaching. Let me give you three applications as we close. First, which one of these responses characterizes you? Now, look, I don't know everyone in this room. Maybe you're all members of this church and professing believers. I pray that that is the case. But maybe there is someone here today who has never believed in Jesus, who is still looking to the false gods and the idols of our culture to give you purpose and security and life. Well, if that's you here today, then the call of the gospel to you is to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. If there are kids here today, you are never too young to come to Jesus. The call for anyone here who has not believed in Christ is to realize that you need salvation, that there is a day of judgment coming, and God has provided salvation in Christ. He sent the Lord Jesus to live a perfect life, to obey God's law, to never sin. And he willingly went to a cross to die a substitutionary death in the place of sinners who deserve God's wrath. But he himself bore that wrath. He absorbed the righteous fury of the wrath of God for sins not his own. And because he never sinned, three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer death forever. And he ascended to heaven and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And right now, today, if you believe in him, you will be saved. You will have life. Don't mock. The tomb is empty. Believe in Jesus. Second, some people say 
that as our culture gets more secular, it is getting harder to reach people with the gospel. Can I just remind you, friends, that people are the same in every generation. They are enslaved to false gods. They are enslaved to sin. At one level, the mission of the church has always been impossible. Because if you, as you have heard me say over and over this weekend, we do not have the power to raise people from the dead or impart spiritual life. Our mission today is no harder than it's always been because people have always been spiritually dead. And the only truth that brings them to life is the message of the gospel. So go out with that confidence. And with that boldness that as you preach, as you plant, as you water, it is God who will give the increase. And lastly, don't get discouraged when people reject the message. Don't be discouraged if the work seems slow and is not making a difference. Look, you invited a speaker here. Normally when churches invite speakers, they invite someone who like has a big church and has done a lot in ministry. I pastor a church of 90 members. Okay, sometimes it feels like we're getting nowhere. We're out there in Mormon country. It is slow. It can be difficult. It can be discouraging. And if you're sharing the gospel with people and they're not believing, it can make you feel like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to encourage you. Don't give in to that temptation. Keep sharing the gospel. Let me tell you a story in closing. A story about Aubrey Sequera. So Aubrey was a student with me at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Brilliant student. He's from India. Brilliant guy. I mean, he was a star student while at the seminary. He did a PhD with Tom Schreiner. I still remember when he was asked to preach in chapel his sermon because his sermon was so good. I mean, just an incredible guy. He's doing amazing work now in Dubai, pastoring a church, raising up leaders, sending out church planters, all this kind of stuff. Well, Aubrey wrote an article in a journal. He wrote it on missions, critiquing the Western church's obsession with numbers and explosive growth and manufacturing numbers to boast about our ministries. He noticed that this is what we do in the West. So he told a story about a faithful, sacrificial missionary to India many years ago. Here's what he said. Let me share with you another personal story, this time of a foreign missionary I knew a missionary who lived and worked in India for years, well over a decade. He established a business in a major city and labored slowly and patiently. He barely had any converts. In fact, he probably had only one. He died in India, and within months of his death, his business was destroyed. By numerical standards and strategic considerations for rapid growth, he was a total failure. By the standards of many Western mission agencies, the many dollars given to support him over the years were a total waste. So was his ministry a waste? I think not. I was his one convert. 
He taught me the gospel. He proclaimed to me the excellencies of Christ. He taught me how to read the Bible and how to discern truth from falsehood. He spent his life in service to his king, and my eternity is changed as a result. May we, brothers and sisters, be provoked to preach Christ. May God bless you as you persevere in the task of evangelism. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the salvation that has come to us. And Lord, we are so thankful for the people that you sent, the feet that carried the message of good news. And so I pray that if we need to be comforted, that you would comfort us. If we need to be disturbed, that you would disturb us. If we need to be shaken out of indifference, that you would shake us out of indifference. We all fall into it. Lord, we pray that you would bless the ministry of the word here at Liberty Bible Church. Lord, that your word would do its work. That your word would bring people out of death and into life. That you would use the saints here to encourage one another and to love one another and to pray for one another and for those who need Jesus. And we pray, O oh God, for true revival that your spirit would indeed be poured out in this city and that many, many would come to know Christ, that the churches would be full, that Christ would be proclaimed, that he would be honored and the idols would fade away. Do that, we ask, for your name, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.